Welcome to Happy Path Programming. I'm Bruce Eckle. I'm James Ward. All right. Well, welcome, everyone. Uh, so today we have with us Anna McDonald, who works for Confluent, right? That's correct. Okay. And I don't think we've ever met in person. So this is fun to get to do this virtually, like the virtual meeting. But at some point, hopefully we do like actually intersect on the physical plane of reality and get to like have some sherry together. Or Absolutely. So. <laughs> that's why I was telling you about Blast right. from the Past. Because oh, that's right. she drank sherry <laughs> secretly. Oh, she she was in the, the bomb shelter and had to hide the sherry. Secretly drinking. drinking sherry because she was going crazy in the follow-up shelter. I drink sherry in the yeah. open. Right, yeah. I'm very transparent <laughs> right. about my, you, my you sherry intake. It. Yes. Okay. Okay, yes. It'd be hard, um, to, so, it'd be hard to hide drinking sherry from somebody if you're stuck in a bomb shelter true. with them. Not a lot of options. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to, well, not play. I'm going to actually be the ignorant one and say, what's Kubernetes? What is it? No, not Kubernetes. Kafka. Kafka. See, I didn't even know what the right thing was. Okay. What does Kafka do? What is it? Uh, so, yeah. So when you talk about Apache Kafka, like at its heart, it's a durable log. Um, I'm not a fan of anything like in life or really, you know, in technology that's transient as much. And so I was never a fan of any messaging systems. They were a waste of time. And I'll say that out loud until I met Kafka. Huh. And I would, you know, Kafka operates in a way that's unlike any of your, you know, more traditional pub subs. Um, and so in my heart, that's what it is, right? For Apache Kafka. Um, and, and it, it, it is, it allows you to have a, and maintain a system of record that, that doesn't lend itself to duplication, like a broadcast pattern. If you have multiple consumers, right, the data is still there. Um, and just, just the protocol of it is elegant. The ecosystem around it too is amazing. And uh, Kafka Streams, which is kind of the, the streaming library that is part of the Apache Kafka ecosystem is, is part of that. It's the love of my life. Isn't that now called KSQL DB? No, those are two different that, things. No, two separate yes. things. Okay. Yes. So there's Kafka so... Streams and KSQL mm -hmm. DB. Does it do okay, something we'll like, I don't know, say RabbitMQ does? I mean, is it a, so it, when you say messaging system, it's like almost like um, the original object-oriented programming, sending messages and somebody handling the messages? Yeah, I mean, it could, but I think that would be underwhelming, like when you look at Kafka. Um, and, and the reason is because when, when I see somebody and, and what I, in my job, right, I work with our customers. Um, and to set, you know, best practices, um, a lot of times, you know, giving them, you know, the best practices for eventing, event patterns, um, you know, how do, how do we move to, you know, near real-time streaming and, 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 and the like. And one of the things that you find very quickly is that because Kafka is a durable log, because it was built to handle the volume of information, all of a sudden, you know, it, if anyone come, approaches Kafka and says, I need to do pub sub, they get very frustrated very quickly. Um, and I'm like, well, you know, no, do you really need to do just PubSub? Because if so, you know, you can use Kafka, but you can do so much more with it. Right. Um, you know, because I mean, it's a PubSub these days, just an anti-pattern. Like, is, no, does anybody really have an no, actual yes. valid use oh, case for do. PubSub? Well, okay, so when I think PubSub, what I think is there's a lot more intelligence, right, on that broker side with knowing what the state of a message is. It has to know. It has to know whether you've got it yet so it knows that it needs to remove it, right? And so there are yeah. cases, and I've met with customers before, and I'm the first person to say don't use Kafka for this. So, you know, if you need something like NAC per message, right? No. 
Like yeah. Kafka's not going to do that for you because Kafka's yeah. ignorant. You know, you're the one who has to tell it when you've received those messages and when it's ready to move on, right? We do that via offsets. So it's basically yeah. a poll, right? I get a batch of messages and then I decide whether or not I want to acknowledge that batch by updating my offset. Um, as you might imagine, trying to like shoehorn something like NAC per message in that ecosystem, it's not a natural fit. Um, so I yeah. would say, what's a, is what's like a good like business use case for NAC that you couldn't do with like offset track like mm -hmm. offset like um, so so you got to think about external it like, offset yeah, storage separation of regulatory uh, of uh, you know regulatory operations. So for example, if I'm somebody and I've fronted whatever my you know messaging system is with an API, and whatever's feeding those messages is not allowed to write. It cannot update. Okay. It cannot change anything. It can just pass through those yeah. messages, right? Whether or not what the, what the state of reception is has to be held with the broker in that case, or somewhere else that's, okay. that's admitted. So that that's what I've run into, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. And so in that case, you would say like Kafka is not your jam if if that's Correct. what you yeah. need. Yeah. Now Confluent might be your jam with like you know a pretty right. interface that we develop and sell to you, right? For stonks, um, you know, right. but but. When we just, you know, talk about, you know, AK, right? Like, and that's the thing. So, so when I always say this, right, um, if our, if, if Confluence business prop was to be the best fully managed Kafka distribution, uh, that would not make me happy as a employee or as, you know, a stockholder. So I always try to yeah. separate that because I do a lot of talks about Apache Kafka. Um, and so what Confluent offers is, you know, Kafka as its heart, but then, you know, a crap ton of other amazingly, you know, valuable features um, as well. So we might yeah. offer something, right? Like something, you know, that, that would do and would accommodate NAC per message on top of Kafka, right? But if you're just somebody who's listening to this and you're like, I want to use Apache Kafka, I have, you know, this this huge regulatory separation of concerns and I need to do NAC per message, Kafka's not going to hold yeah. that for you. So let's so talk about a place where... Name oh, Kafka, Kafka, the name. The philosopher, I assume, is who they named Yeah, yeah. I think, uh, I think Jay who's our CEO read a lot of Kafka and he was like, it's easy to spell, which I appreciate because I'm a horrible speller. Um, and like went with it. Uh -huh. No, believe, nothing. No, deeper no than exciting that. story. No, I don't there. think so. Just... I mean, I could be wrong. I'm sure people will tell me if I'm wrong, but I, I think that, that that from the long short of it, I think that's what, what went down. Okay. And the history, I don't know if you know, Bruce, but it was actually built at LinkedIn as a, so it started as a project within LinkedIn for dealing with the problems that LinkedIn had technically, and then they open sourced it with Apache. Yeah. And then Jay took it and, and Jay and, and, uh, and Neha and uh, June, uh, who is just a beautiful person inside and out. June's like one of the nicest people I've ever met in my life. Um, and then they found huh. a confluent. Yeah. Huh. Nice. And, and I guess, yeah, maybe James was getting to this. What kind of use case would you see for this? Oh my gosh, every that's why I never get bored. So like every all data, under, all data that isn't NAC correct. messaging. It's, it's fantastic. Hey, wait, what's NAC messaging? <laughs> so that's like that's like I'm I'm getting a bunch of messages, right? And maybe I receive some of them, but in a non-blocking fashion, somebody has to keep track of the ones I haven't act yet, and that person can't be me. And that, you know, so yeah. In a, in a typical like messaging architecture, 
you you may need to track if a message is being has been processed by the receiver and so one pattern to do that is to say all right the the receiver needs to acknowledge back to the okay, thing that sent the message that that it has been received right so we're talking ack knack kind of things i'm still having a hard time imagining like how am i what what do i need this thing for and how am i using it and you know really basic yeah. stuff yeah so one of the, the things that, you know, like, again, I like about my job is I get to learn so much about industry. So if you take something like fintech, you know, financial services, we have people who run an entire, you know, retail bank on Kafka. Fraud use cases are kind of bread and butter for us, right? So you've got, you know, East Coast, West Coast, somebody swipes a card, right? Is that fraud? You know, we have one customer and their goal is to make sure they detect it before your credit card's back in your pocket, Right. And Kafka, because it was made to handle such a volume, being developed at LinkedIn, right? It's all those interactions on a website um, is uniquely suited to do that. The other ones, I mean, there's some really, so for example, and, and there, there are obviously customers I can talk about and ones that I can't, um, you know, legally. And, and one of the presentations of one of my customers is the um, CDC, the Center for Disease Control. So when COVID hit, um, you know, Kafka um, is used and, and Confluent Platform is used for, you know, COVID testing data and vaccination data, um, which, as you might imagine, made me feel a lot better helping <laughs> that initiative during the pandemic because I felt like I was actually doing something. So you've got, you know, all of this information coming in from all over the country, right? It's used to help identify hotspots. And because you can stream it in so fast, because once it gets there, you can do those transformations with something like Kafka Streams very easily um, and then spoke it out to whatever sync you want. It just is a very elegant way to do, you know, those types of use cases. Okay. Maybe, all right. Maybe I'm asking the question wrong. What problem does it solve? What, where do I get where I go, oh, I need a thing like this and Kafka is a thing like this. What, what, what's so let's there? say that, you know, you're a normal company and you have like a crap ton of legacy databases, right? And you really want to do eventing because that's a lot better way to do. You've got a lot of people and, and the easiest one to say, let's say that you're doing customer data and somebody goes on your website and they change your address. Wait, why do you want to do eventing? Well, because you're, if you wait 24 hours, like your, com your, your competitors have already beat you. So like, so, okay. So, okay, so one, yeah, go ahead. one way to look at this is that we have a traditional way of looking at data as a table and it's just this like thing that you update and can query, but if you take a step back from that perspective, all data is just events that that can flow as a stream. And the what Kafka does is it shifts the paradigm from thinking about this table that is just a view of what of all the changes that have happened. Instead, let's look at data as a stream. And then we can do all sorts of interesting things when we look at it as a stream. We kind can, of more functional way of thinking about it, maybe. Yeah, yep. that's why that's I like right. it because okay. I have a functional brain. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So Kafka is just keeping this log of all the events, and if you want something like a table, well, you can you can keep track of all the events and view it as a table. Or if you don't care about ever viewing it as a table, you just want to like send events to a bunch of different consumers or a bunch of consumers are consuming events, then you can do that. But here's one of the really cool things with Kafka is that in a traditional like message streaming system, you think about things as like a given consumer. And so a consumer is going to, is going to connect 
begin consuming messages. And so you can do a stream oriented system, but what happens when you want to add like a second system? So back to your like CDC use mm -hmm. case is like, I would guess that when COVID happened, all of a sudden they're like, oh, we need to do something different with all this okay. data, with this whole data stream. And so then they connect another consumer and another consumer and another consumer. Mm -hmm. Well, those consumers get to decide, do I want to start at the beginning of all the messages in time? Or do I want to start somewhere in the middle or at the newest message? And, and am I okay with that? But it's pretty cool that now in the stream-oriented system, the consumer gets to decide what it, where it wants to start from. So that makes me think kind of like the actor model. You know, the actor mm -hmm. model gets events and it decides which ones and what order it's going to um, deal with them. Yeah. Or whether it deals with them at all. Yeah, absolutely. And, but yeah. this, instead of, instead of having the queue in each actor, this is some sort of a centralized. Exactly. Queue and that's events. the thing. I hate okay. duplication of effort. It's annoying to me, mm -hmm. right? And that's kind of what I talked about mm -hmm. before with those normal messaging systems where you'd have to do like a broadcast. You have to set up something for each and every single person, right? When when you have across an organization to go back to that, there are tons of people who are interested when a customer's address changes, right? You create a stream mm -hmm. of events. You can, and that's what I love CDC. I'm biased because I think it's awesome. And I think it enables people to get going quick. Um, but all you do is you hook up change data capture from your database. And then every time an address changes, that is going to be published to Kafka, Right, and anyone who cares can consume it. And so, and you're also saying that every event is held forever. So it can be, sure, yeah, it can absolutely. be if you want. Yeah, it's okay. configurable yeah. if that's important to you. Okay, so that way, if uh, say somebody's dealing with uh, data flowing in, they can choose to take this week's data or they can choose data from the beginning of whenever you started collecting it. Okay. I could certainly see that as being useful for um, scientists, for example. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think for me, Kafka opened up a whole new way to think about data. And I think I've ranted about this before, but small rant. Uh, I think it's absolutely horrible that the kind of default way that we deal with data in web applications, mobile applications, whatever, is that you load a page and the page doesn't change generally until you like hit refresh, even if the underlying data mm -hmm. is changing. And this is one of those things where I'm like, this is just not the way that the world should work. And the way that it the reason why it works that way is because we've got database tables and we have a web page that does a query to that database table. We don't, we're not generally looking at data as being a stream. And so this leads to just, I think, generally horrible experiences where it's like, oh, geez, like that data actually did change and I didn't see the change because I didn't hit reload. Yeah. Well, I think we were constrained by the old client server model, which was because of resources at the time. And that's yeah. true. And, and like, right. So I'll never forget yeah. what our DBA said to me um, when I first hooked this up. He was like, where is it going? Where is Kafka keeping all this? How is it not falling <laughs> over? And I was like, that's the magic, my friend. Because, you know, yeah. the way that Kafka was designed was to handle immense volumes of data. So one of the things we did with CDC was I had to figure out, and this is kind of what led me to Kafka, like in, in about 2017, was I had to figure out, okay, we've got these tables. They got, you know, over five, six million records, multiple of them. We truncate them every night. I got to find a system that can take that truncation, right? And CDC and not bad an eye. 
And Kafka doesn't bat an yeah. eye. You can pump you can pump so much data into it that all of a sudden things that you could like just what you said, things that you were constrained on before were like you're never gonna be able to drive that much data out of a database to a messaging system. It's gonna fall over. All of a sudden with Kafka, yeah. it doesn't bat an eye and you have all of your events. The first talk I ever did was called Finding the Events Hidden in Your Database. Um, <laughs> and and you have it just opens up a whole new world of information that used to be locked in a database. What was it? Yeah, but you in? lose. I guess like a database table is intentionally lossy, mm -hmm. right? It's compression. It is <laughs> compressing all these events down into a view, and probably to Bruce's point, doing that for efficiency. Because back in the day, we didn't have the space to to keep around all the events that led us to that state. And now we generally do have the available data to keep all the events. Mm -hmm. Well, and I was also thinking of, I mean, the client server thing was, it's like, okay, well, where are the uh, powerful resources located? And so, you know, it's mostly on the client and the, and the, I mean, mostly on the server and the client was this dumb thing and, you know, the bandwidth between them was limited and everything. So um, we, but we designed around those constraints and now we're still stuck with them. You yeah. Know, so we had to add that, uh, what is it, the you know, the built-in push to JavaScript only happened a few years ago. Yeah, service and events and WebSockets. And yeah, WebSockets, and that's, right? that's yeah. kind you of what I was going to say. So, like, when we talk about the Kafka ecosystem, my favorite use case for KSQLDB is server-side filtering. Um, so you can take mm -hmm. KSQLDB, you can make a query, like we talked about, like a table, let's say, um, that's indexed on stock symbol. Well, just for, for sakes and purposes, right? And there'll be a real-time stream that's updating, you know, that K table, that cache for extensive purpose, rocks DB under the covers in real time. With KSQLDB, you can do pull and push queries. And those push queries are, it's a long-lived connection. So that for a dashboard use case, right, is very powerful. So then, you know, you can say, hey, you know, I only want to get this stock symbol. And then it's a continually updating data stream that's connected. And we have, you know, native Java clients, we have REST clients, we have all kinds of things that you can hook into that. Um, so it's really flexible that way. So you you talk about how rock solid it is. Um, so I'm curious how they achieved this. Like, for example, what programming language did they use to build Kafka? So Kafka was written. Kafka Kafka was written in what I like to call Java Scala. <laughs> Java Scala. That's a good way to put it. Right. And then as they built out the ecosystem, it's in Java. Okay. okay. Yeah. So they initially built it as in Scala, but but written by like traditionally Java developers, so it was Scala written like it, with a what we call like uh, Java without semicolons. Mm. Mm -hmm. But when yeah, so, but I will say yeah, I laugh, but I will say that when you go and you look at the source code, my my favorite class in, in all of Kafka is partition.scala. It's the one that controls like who owns what, right? Who's in sync? And for a distributed system, as you might imagine, that's kind of critical, like semi really important. Um, it's it's incredibly elegant. Um, just the the way that they've made those those hard choices to be elegant and to build something that's is is part of the reason why I fell in love with Kafka. Um, you know, before I before I went all in, I went and I looked at you know obviously I always look at the code, uh, and I went and I looked and I and I could I said, well that's the way I would have done it. Well that's smart. That's the way I would and and it just kind of made me fall in love with it. Um, nice. That's cool. They got the they got the foundational pieces done well. Um, 
One thing I wanted to point out back to you real quick, the compression. I'm just going to harp on this mm-hmm. a little bit longer. When you when you have a database, a traditional database that is essentially that like compression of all the events, you've lost all the events. Yeah. And I think that this is really important is that when you start with a stream, a durable stream oriented construct, you can build everything you need on top of that. Whereas when all you have is a database table, you have lost your events and you there's all sorts of things you cannot build on top of that. Anything, you've lost the stream of events, right? And so that's where I just love Kafka because I'm like, it gives you the flexibility to do what you whatever you would need with that data. And it gives you the full picture. Right. That's what I love. I hate, I don't want half the story. Right. I want the whole story. Um, and I love the love the way Kafka does that, you know, and, and CDC data. I know I'm going to say it again. I just love it. Um, it. You can, the struct is normally for, for all of our CDC connectors, be it, you know, Debezium. I think, you know, Confluent has an Oracle one, Oracle has Golden Gate. Um, you can have the option of getting the before and after. Right. And that is a money pattern. So until you can get, um, you know, if, if that's all you've got, you can really use that to derive events, which is also like a derivative event pattern. Um, it, it, it's just so powerful to be able to see the change and see what happened. And then again, like you said, you can take that anywhere. Yeah. So when you say you lose the events, I mean, you could store all the information about the events in your database, right? Your DBA would kill you, but yes. <laughs> okay. But yeah. and then you're saying somehow yeah. Kafka can do this in an efficient enough fashion. A very efficient or way. Use a yeah. different database, or or do you? So the, do you, the actual logs are written. You actually you you tell us yeah because I don't I just yeah so, you know, read something once but right you so it's a durable know. log and when I say that I mean it's a log so the dot log file right and that data is stored um you know and and obviously you know we, we've made improvements so the the batch those records batches are stored compressed whatever whatever compression type you want to select you know as a producer you can also set it at a broker side I hardly ever recommend that unless you have you know, serious issues, because then, you know, the broker is responsible for compression, shoots up your CPU, yada, yada. But it stores it as a compressed log file in segments. And so if you were to go look at a file system on Kafka, you would see log files for that partition. So then, you know, the, the question that we've had, and this is another reason why um, there's there's two things. So in AK, um, Uber uh, worked on this, did, did a fantastic job too with this kip um, to introduce tiered storage, you know, into AK, at least the, the hooks in Apache Kafka. Confluent has a proprietary offering for tiered storage uh, that allows you to offload, you know, some of those log files to a cheaper storage type like S3, which has been, you know, you know, again, engenders you to be able to keep that kind of stuff longer. But there are companies like New York Times has done a number of talks on that. They store every single article that ever has been published in Kafka for all time. Um, right. And yeah. so that's kind of the storage mechanism, you know, under the covers. And so there's some, can't... there's some cool like IO things they're able to take advantage of that allow that like sequential, like push to the actual disc to be super efficient. But then even on the read side, they do some nice, you, uh, is it, what's the, um, IO channel thing that in Linux that enables you to like write, uh, instead of having a buffer from disk to network, yes, you, do that. you, yeah. you just like do a yep. direct, yep. direct like, copy yep. from yeah, direct yeah. IO. Although I would, so they get they, some cool efficiency. Like I would love for us to switch out our socket server to use Netty so we can use IO Uring. Jen's is a friend yeah. of mine and a lovely know, human and awesome. I love him and I love IO Uring. So I, there are yeah. further improvements we can make, but yes. We yep, take advantage right. of everything in Linux to make it fast. So 
does this work only with Java or? Yeah. Oh, it's so it's Java mm -hmm. only. No, well, the the client side. So as a okay. as a message producer or consumer, they have also. It's just yeah. a it's a protocol. So there are protocol implementations for everything. Um, but the but the initial one yeah. was was. Java. I'm trying to get oh, a native Cobol, Cobol client. Like I, that's my other no. push because I think it'd be money. Uh, we don't have a native Cobol client yet, but you're right. I, everything else pretty much besides Cobol. Okay. So the so, actual Kafka server runs as a JVM process. Right. But no, the, I get yeah. that. Okay. But I'm just wondering can, who can use oh, it. Oh, anybody. I mean, we have, there's reactive yeah. Kafka all, all the way up. You know, there's there's all kind. There's Node Kafka. Oh, there's, yeah. you know, Everything. and then there's LibRD Kafka, which is like the C interface. And there's a lot of clients we have that are built on that. There's also other popular, you know, ecosystem open source clients for stuff like Go and, and that kind of thing. So this sounds, I mean, maybe this is a weird thing to ask, but this sounds like an important enough thing that you, I could imagine creating a um, custom version of Linux just to be a Kafka box or whatever. Still is that crazy? No, I, I mean, I don't think that's crazy. What I would say is that people tend to underestimate the power of Kafka running like it does today. So I'll have customers and it's, it's really adorable and they'll go, you don't understand how, how, what our throughput is, you know? And then they'll be like, we might need to push a million messages a day. And I'm like, yeah, I'm like oh, right. Like, yeah. And, and so when you get into those really like where you're, where that would be money and what you're talking about is when you would get into a really, really low SLA use case. Um, so, you know, when you're talking about something that, that doesn't need to go in milliseconds or talking nanoseconds, right? That's when that type of, of optimization, you know, would become incredibly powerful for those specific use cases. For the 98% of other use cases, um, Kafka running mm -hmm. as is on, on a Linux distro is, is, is faster than what most people have ever seen. Okay. No, it's good to know. Well, plus the overhead of doing what I'm talking about would be huge. And so if it's, if, it, if the benefit isn't. Yeah. And we, we do custom things. So we Confluent has a fully managed offering too in our cloud. Right. And we uh -huh. do custom things uh -huh. in that. Right. Like, yeah, yeah. We're, we're all over that. Right. So, so okay. that, that's, yeah. And, and there's other stuff. And I, I actually was talk, talking to Corey Quinn. I went on his podcast a while back and oh, nice. yeah. And we were, I love Corey. He's hilarious. Yeah, he's um, awesome. And we were he's chatting. Hilarious. And one of the things I think that, that people sometimes understand is yes, Kafka is this amazing, you know, distributed system. Right. But my passion is, is really in an inventing space. And when that happens, what I've seen in, in a lot of organizations is there's a huge pain point where this stuff is great. It's like crack. And all of a sudden now we have it everywhere and we don't know what we're doing. And so the idea of also using Kafka, like when we talk about, and I know it's an overloaded term, but central nervous system is that you're all of a sudden now have observability. You're able to build observability on top of that in a centralized fashion. And that to me, when we, we talk about why should I use this, what's the business value? Um, that's huge. And it's only going to get bigger as more and more and more. I mean, I see people now asking about eventing, you know, and this to my, own, my whole thing is I want to get tires is like swag sometimes. So like, and, and factory tours. So like, I want to be able to like tour tire factory. And we're seeing more and more companies that are like, you know, legacy manufacturing, everybody coming and realizing that to compete in today's world, right? You've got to be more reactive than 24 hours. And that's really driving this push, you know, to, to come to Kafka. When you, and that's a reference to like the typical 
change data capture batch nightly batch job kind of thing is like like that's the way that we because we didn't have a streaming oriented foundation we instead would run nightly yeah. batch jobs that would <laughs> take all the events from that day and pump them out to all the systems that needed to know about the changes and that is just a horrible architecture it is i legit have two pages. i have two old pagers in here from like on-call rotations and i always sometimes i bring them out and i'm like do you like still carrying these right <laughs> yes no yeah. maybe like no that's not the way you can't Absolutely yeah you can't not. do that anymore yeah. and be competitive you really just can't yeah mm-hmm. yeah you need your data and you need yep. it now well, it also sounds a little bit like what crypto was supposed to promise, the journaling and the being able to, you know, go back through, which there's, who knows if it works or not. There's a lot of inst- interesting parallels, I think, between blockchain and Kafka. The, the biggest difference, I think, is that in the world of Kafka, you don't need... you you don't have untrusted rights and the whole point of blockchain is to deal with with somehow creating a system of trust around untrusted people that have right access in the world of kafka you likely trust all of your producers that that the data that they're producing is it has been authorized to be written yeah and as much as centralization you know has that bad taste and you know because people get to do bad things if they're in a patriarchy at the top um it's like okay but maybe there are some things that like well what you just said how do you trust untrusted people writing it was like well that's a um uh, what is that a you know the, <laughs> unsolvable problem <laughs> oh, well no i mean i think it's just a logical I don't know, logical inconsistency. Yeah. It's like you're just saying, yeah. how do you trust somebody who's untrustworthy? Right. Yeah. You uh, don't. Yeah. You can't. Yeah. You well, can't. In the world of blockchain, you make them pay to to actually like there's a there you have to give up something of physical uh value, which in the case of, of most crypto is electricity, is what you give up. And so that's how you introduce incentives for things to be trusted. Do you remember when we used to have all those FTP servers for like MP3s yeah. back in the day and you had to oh, have yeah. that upload capacity before you could download anything? Oh, that's that, right. Like, yeah, you had to give something did. to the system. Exactly. It's that's yep. like played out again. Yep, absolutely. I, uh, yeah. yeah, that's interesting. I downloaded, the first thing that I ever downloaded was Survivor songs. It was the best band ever. Yeah. I love Survivor. <laughs> I remember Survivor. Yeah. <laughs> like old school rock. Absolutely, man. High on you? Come on. That's awesome. <laughs> nice. So, okay. So I want to transition to, I think we've covered a lot of the reasons why Kafka and some of the, the basics and all that. I want to talk about architectural patterns. Sure. So one of the, the architectural patterns that I, I, I think is world-changing is CQRS. So tell us about CQRS, what it is and why it's so amazing. Yeah. So I think, you know, for me, when, when I look at CQRS, you know, what I see is resolving something that was never going to work in the first place. Um, you know, when I, you know, and, and I admittedly, like my experience in doing anything that was like UI is not in any way, shape, form as deep as it is on backend stuff, but I have dabbled. And I'm like, why can't you just give me what I need? Like, I, I know how I need to display this. Just give me that. 
Like I, you know, and that to me is the heart of, of what problem, right? CQR solves is basically it says, Hey, look, you know, the way that you want to store your data, the way you want to write it, that's, you don't want to be bound to that and your display, right? How you, how people might want to interact with that data and that natural decoupling gives you so much more flexibility, you know, speed to makes it easier to develop, makes it easier to develop both. Right. So you're, it's basically decoupling the way my data is stored and written from the way I might want to see it presented. That's, that's to me, the yeah, idea behind CQRS. Yeah. So it stands it for logical. command query res, uh, responsibility. No, <laughs> command query responsibility segregation. Yes. No. Is that, am I getting yes, that separation right? or segregation. Okay. One, one separation. Yeah. I don't remember. One yeah, that's one's fuzzy. Yeah. Either one works. Yeah. So separating out the command, which is the way that you write the data, from the query, which is the way you want to view the mm-hmm. data, which yep. is exactly what you said. So so that's that's the CQRS architectural pattern. And Kafka is a wonderful foundation for CQRS because you've got a great way to store the commands. What what um, is not in base Kafka is the way to then create those queries. But then we get into Kafka Correct. streams and KSQLDB, right? Which is right? why I brought up what's my favorite thing about yeah. KSQLDB, right? Server-side filtering, right? Yep. But Kafka streams, and, and that is what makes it so powerful. So I fought really hard to get Kafka in our org. And then I was like, I won and I was like, yes. And I was in my closet and I remember going, well, crap. Now what, what do I do with it? Uh-oh, what have I, what have I done? Right. And so right. then I did my research and I found Kafka streams and Kafka streams. The thing I love about it most is unlike other, you know, when we look at other stream processing systems, right? Like Flink, right. Or Spark, where you have to have an entire infrastructure to support, you know, Flink and Spark. Kafka streams is just a jar file and it has a fluent uh, DSL, which is, no, I love it. It's like, this was like, to me, like the only way that makes Java fun. I was like, wow, this is, I can get on board with this. And Kafka streams is best when you use it to read from a Kafka topic, you do something that something can be amazing, or it can be something as easy as a filter, let's say, and then you produce it back to a Kafka topic, right? So it's kind of an intermediary. Now we also have vanilla consumers where you can consume directly from Kafka, right? do something with it, and then say, I'm going to put it somewhere else. There's also, and we haven't talked about this yet, there's the connect, you know, in- infrastructure. And that connect is like, you know, a very low code way you deploy a configuration. There's like hundreds and hundreds of connectors for every system that you could think of, right? If you need to ship data out. But where CQRS comes in is basically now, let's say that I need this data to look a certain way, and maybe you need it to look another way, or you need it to look another way, Right. I can spin up a Kafka Streams application or, you know, and then modify that data, get it in the, the precise way I want it to look, right? And it's no extra work on the initial data stream, right? No matter yeah. how many people grab that data, it's only stored once and it's the same for everyone. And that's the efficiency that makes me happy in Kafka, right? <laughs> um, and then KSQLDB yep. is even a step further towards what we would traditionally think about when we think about the query part of CQRS, because you can create a K table review and then have an external client come in and get hooks on that, right? Have a long lived connection that feeds it updates based on a customized view. So that's how Kafka you know, plays in. So let me ask a more basic question. When, you, when you're talking about this, you're saying, okay, um, what I say, I'm a web client mm-hmm. and I, want to display some data and I'm able to then go back and say, here's the data I want. 
and it just gives me the data I want. Can well, materialize that view. Of idiotically <laughs> obvious, right? Okay. Yeah, so okay. I, I think a actual use case back to your like address change one would be an interesting, simple one to start with. So if we imagine a system where people are changing their addresses, we are going to store in Kafka every change to that address. And yeah, we could do some compaction, whatever, if we wanted to. But let's just imagine that, that Kafka is storing user A changed their address, user A changed their address again. Mm -hmm. So that is the stream of, of events that we have. But there's a lot of systems that they don't care about the actual stream. They just want to know what is user A's address right yeah. now. And so mm -hmm. that's where we get to the ability to then query the materialized view of what is how have all these stream events gotten us to a specific state that we're in yep. now? Yeah. And then there's then there's a whole other part of it, which which you mentioned with like Kafka streams, which is what if we want to take the stream of address change events and do some transformation on them before we then get to that materialized view? Like, I don't know, we want to validate that the address is a valid address or something like that. And if it's not do something right, or maybe enrich it with a customer that. name. Maybe we and need the name and it's only go. an ID, right? Like all those all those things that we need to, you know, build, you know, that that non-normalized, you know, kind of like, you know, view of, of a customer. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, I think one of the challenges with CQRS is that the programming model is harder than just a static database table. Like it's like, there's more that you have to think about when you move to that architectural pattern. Whereas the, the simplicity of the database table is nice because there's all sorts of things you don't have to think about. You don't have to think about producer right guarantees and uh, consumer um, partitioning. And, you know, there's just all these pieces that the database table has this nice, simple design because it you've lost all sorts of Right. I would say it's boring, but that's the way my brain works. And I think you're right. There's a large sect of the population where it's a totally new way of thinking, right? And that's kind of where we come in. So part of my job is to help people with that transition and to make sure they're set up for success. So they don't hit all those hard edge cases. They don't have to figure it out for themselves because we already know the best practices. We already know how to do this successfully. But if you're going it alone, I mean, I remember when I did this, I had literally, I ruined my stomach. I had like 18 Coke cans and not the small ones, like the pounders. You know what I mean? <laughs> oh yeah, God. I'm not kidding you. And I was like, you know, like I had in like pajamas, like my glasses. And I was like, oh, all right. Okay. Like, you know, like up here for hours. And I don't want anyone else to have to go through that because sugar will ruin your stomach. Like it will. You cannot ingest that much sugar <laughs> and have it not impact you. So don't do that. Don't do what I did. <laughs> so the way you're talking about it, reminds me of immutable data structures in functional yeah, programming. It does it. <laughs> it does, you know, I mean, at least, but my brain has been immersed in all that stuff. So I'm, I'm not sure if I'm thinking about it correctly. Well, I, I mean, I would say you yeah. are, I mean, Kafka by its very okay. nature, if you, and that's why I say it, the other way is boring for me, right? Because I have a functional brain. Mm -hmm. So people who are mm -hmm. function, who are just driven those, those functional brains, they see this and they go like, hello. And it's really, you know, kind of bringing other people along who have spent a lot of time in non-functional. That's their comfort zone. That's where they are. And to kind of say, look, not only am I going to, you know, try to help you with this. And we, we do this in a community fashion too, right? So, you know, Confluent runs a ton of great meetups. They're free. 
you know, come join. We do eventing things. We do blog articles. We have an entire pattern repo now for eventing patterns and best practices. Yes. It's uh, free developer.confluent.io um, and lists out some like routing slip patterns, uh, you know, like claim check pattern, all the ways you accommodate this way of thinking for, for how you're currently done. Because as you said, right, that's what makes the database so easy partially is because we figured out how to do that. People know how to do that. So helping people figure out how to do this efficiently, I think, is, is part of our goal. I, I think in what you're identifying too, Bruce, is that there is a similarity in thinking about object, the way that we traditionally, maybe not traditionally, it's not the right way to do it. Mutable objects in object-oriented programming are very similar to mutating a database table. Exactly. And now in the functional world, we look at both of those things and we're like, ew, ew. like, 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 yeah, exactly. And so Kafka being this like immutable stream of events that you can listen to and perform transformation functions on where the output of the transformation is just a new stream Mm -hmm. you can't modify all of a sudden Mm -hmm. you're like, Oh God, this, yeah, exactly. And I said like, this fits with how I think about the world and how the world should work. Yeah, I'm, I'm going through that transformation now. And one of the things that I'm really seeing is, oh, the ideas of behind encapsulation sounded good. But in practice, it's like, oh, so every so so we got the data and then we surround it by these methods and every method has to make sure that it doesn't mess put the data into a bad state. And so just do that. And it's like, yeah, that hasn't really worked out so well. So maybe we should just go, all right, how about if nobody can change the data ever? Oh, then I don't need all of those methods attached to the object. I can just make them separate functions. And then I also don't need to worry about whether I put the object into a bad state. Oh, okay. And then you don't have to worry about concurrency yeah. and how concurrency is well, going to screw to, all yeah. this up. All of that stuff happens, <laughs> flows out of that. But it's like, I don't know why it took me so long to see it. I think it's just because we presented, oh, encapsulation, this is so much better than what we've been doing before. You know, it's kind of like capitalism. It's like, well, it's better than having monarchy. So it must be the best thing ever, and we should never change it. And it's like the same with objects. It's like, oh, well, this is an improvement over what we did before. But then we go, ah, uh, yeah, but we need we need to move forward from that. Maybe, maybe it did help, but it also looks like a rabbit hole, that a dead end, you know. And, and the thing is, we never pulled it off. That's the thing. We never pulled encapsulation off. We just always, I think, hit the places where it stopped working. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I guess my pitch is that Kafka gives us the foundation where, yeah, it, there's some things that are harder about it, but it gives us the foundation that allows us to build almost anything on top of when it comes to data. And we well, don't and run I'm wondering into those about the like, places part. where it falls apart. <laughs> you know, is it is it harder or is it just we're not... You know, we we've been trained to think one way, yeah. and it, that, that, so and that I think that counts as hard. So having to change your mindset oh, is really hard. Oh yeah, there's yeah, technically hard, right? 
Not really. You can spin mm-hmm. it up in two seconds. Mind shift hard for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. It is, but it's worth it. It's absolutely worth it. Like, come on, the functional train. Right. You love it here. We got donuts, right? free beer, <laughs> and sherry. Yeah, although I and sherry, I have been. I mean, it's like I've been studying all sorts of functional writings and documentation, and virtually everybody is one of those who where it's intuitive. Yeah. At some point, it becomes intuitive, and then they just start throwing stuff out at the reader as if, well, of course you understand this. They they totally miss the what. One of the best examples of this was the guy um, who wrote the JavaScript book, uh, JavaScript. Oh, Doug Arts. Crawford. Doug Crawford. He has a presentation where he talks about the curse of the monad, and he goes, "So here's the problem." You know, you learn the monad and then it becomes obvious to you and then you treat it. And then he says, I'm going to not do that this time. And then immediately becomes incomprehensible. Right. You know, and it's like, I don't know if you were trying to demonstrate the curse of the monad or if you really thought you were explaining it clearly. And and I just keep seeing this over and over and over again with, with uh, functional programming descriptions. Right. So I'm famous just for my me. horrible analogies. That's like, you know, because I never, okay. I always. Give, com- us a horror. Give us an example. So, so well, I've compared like Linger MS to toilet paper, um, right? Again, like I compare eventing to Giardia. Uh, I compared uh, actually multi-zone resiliency in Kafka to my husband being drunk, helping me hold up a curtain rod, because I think your point is so apt. You can't get people on board unless you explain it in terms they understand. And if your brain doesn't naturally take to this stuff, you got to find common ground, right? Um, And so I think that's very important in in what we do. So for example, I did a Kafka streams presentation called, uh, (laughs) called a Kafka streams adventure, choose your own topology, right? Remember like those choose your own adventure books, like turn to page 23. And so at the end, I built like this flow chart of your choices. But when we went through it, it was an example where you're trying to catch somebody who's taken too long of a coffee break, right? And screwing your production line, right? So like a real life example, and then showed, you know, how easy this is to do in Kafka streams. What are our considerations here? Right. And I think we need more of that. We need more of Mm -hmm. people, things that people can kind of resonate with because we want everybody to have these benefits. We don't want people to continue to, you know, and I sometimes I I feel bad because I know, you know, I worked at SAS, which, you know, I'll be, I'll be diplomatic has been around for a long time. Um, And, (laughs) you know, and, and so, you you know, you see where people go through a transition with all this technical debt up and they can't get out from underneath it and they can't, you know, and be able to introduce them to something like this and make them, you know, basically like their jobs again um, is a big part of why I like my job. But to do that, you have to speak the right language. You can't just expect people to pick up on this. I agree 100 percent. Yeah, this is uh, I'm reminded of um, I don't know who brought this up, but the the carpet bombing consulting approach where somebody comes in and they say okay you're doing it wrong here's the right way to do it okay see you later and then of course it has no effect versus going in and saying okay where are you right now what can you acquire what changes can you make and that's harder of course but that's to me what the value of a real consultant is yeah and and i think that's very very apt as well so like what what i do is and and i again my full title is incredibly long i'm really proud of it because it's the longest title i think at okay what's your title i am a customer success technical architect 
Um, we, oh. and it's the, but the abbreviation siesta. So that's why I liked it. Cause we like to say, oh, we help you take good. a nap, right? So you don't have to worry about production, <laughs> but that's something we do. So like, I'm, I, I am with the same accounts, right? And I do lots of other things as well. But my primary focus is to be with these accounts, right? And the first thing I look at is what are we working with here? Right? What kind of shop are you? What kind of developers do you have? And then we find a, a success plan that works with what you got. Because no one wants to live with a science experiment for two years. Like that's not showing value. You know, we want to we want to work with what you mm -hmm. got. So I think, you know, that's a good point, too, is, is figuring out what can we do that is right best practices with what, you know, the skills that the people that work there have with the, you know, the time they have, the priorities and all that kind of stuff. Can I make a little side observation yeah. here about the terminology there? You know how um, human resources are now just called resources. I mean, first of all, they were called human resources, but now they're just called resources. Is this um, just when preparing you, us for the robots becoming resources in, this, probably. in these systems when you, too? When you refer to customers as accounts, think about what that means. Yeah, I guess that that's true. That means the focus is on the money that well, we're getting Well, I don't get paid on you. commission. I don't care how much they I know you don't, but, but other you're people forced do. to use that terminology. That's true. It should be like Disney where everyone's a guest, not a customer, right? <laughs> Which is full of irony, but... It's a good... No, it's a good call-out. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, go ahead. Um, the, the metaphors give us a frame that we see things through, so... Mm -hmm. Yeah, sometimes we need to address those metaphors. And then mm -hmm. sometimes the metaphors, this is interesting because as you were talking about the metaphors you use to explain Kafka, I was thinking about metaphors that that then lose their original meaning, like the uh, save icon being the like floppy yeah. disk and how, how kids, obviously, they've never seen a real floppy disk in their lives, but but it still is the icon that for most people now has no actual correlation mm -hmm. to reality. Toilet paper is pretty solid, though, I thought. Like, I don't think that's right. going that one, away. That metaphor is not going away. I mean, unless everyone buys bidets, like that was a thing during the pandemic, yeah. right? Right. Yeah, we couldn't get toilet is paper. That, so Is that better? I mean, I'd want to know whether that is using more or less resources than toilet that's paper. That's true. A bidet, there's water issues. And until we yeah. solve that problem. Yeah. Yeah, maybe yeah. it's not better. It's a better experience, but uh, um, anyway. <laughs> okay, so uh, back to architecture real quick. Um, what's the difference between event sourcing and CQRS? Right, so so everything. Like, they're not the same thing at all, right? I mean, you know, yeah. like CQRS is, is a way that you interact with data, right? Um, and then event sourcing is a way that you basically, I love like Martin Fowler had this, this definition, this best definition, because it just cuts to the chase, right? If you can blow away your current state and rebuild it back from whatever your event store is, you're event sourcing. If you can't, you're not. It's cut and dry, right? But the, the, the thing about, you know, when you look at like, you know, CQRS, that has nothing to do with it, right? You know, you can, you can CQRS in the database, right? Which is clearly, you know, not event source. So, so there, there yeah. are two different things. And I would say, you know, and, and I always say there's, there's some, some people who get, you know, a little frustrated with me. I mean, maybe that's why I don't get invited on certain calls anymore. Um, but they ask, you know, like, what's the number one, you know, thing you say if somebody asks you about event sourcing? I was like, I ask them, are you sure you want to event source? Is it worth it? Because 99% of the time it's not. Like event sourcing and eventing are not synonymous at all in any way, shape or form. Um, and I really, my thing is eventing is for everybody. So 
you know, event sourcing, it, there are some there are some use cases where event sourcing gives you enough benefit to make it worth it to do what you need to do. But there are so many other ones where something as simple as event notification. So I'm just going to tell you an address change. I'm not even going to tell you whose. I'm not going to tell you anything. But I used to have to wait 24 hours to know that. Now I know now and maybe so I go events. check, right? There's so much value in simple eventing use cases. Yeah. So event sourcing would be, I want to know when all of these changes happened, the sequence that they're happening, that they happened. So event sourcing. And then yeah. I'll, from that, I'll, re, I'll build the data that I want. And you're saying, well, most of the time you don't need to do that. You just want the data. You don't want the whole... Well, you know, well right, and, and how it got absolutely. Way. And sometimes you don't need to store every single individual change for all time, right? Maybe you only want to store the last seven days, right? And there's a there's other mm -hmm. things besides storing those changes. You know, there's like separate. So, so I always call it the argument of the arbitrator, right? In a database, you have a built-in arbitrator, right? So so they have you know opportunistic you know locking commits, right? So if you were trying to do that in Kafka, right, you would have to build the arbitrator. So there's a big yeah. thing on Twitter and it cracks me up all the time. So like sometimes me and Gunnar who works uh, on Divisium, we kind of giggle about it, right? Like if you want to piss people off, just like put hashtag DDD and hashtag event sourcing and then mention Kafka, <laughs> nice. right? Um, mm -hmm. and, but, but I think what the point is of the people who, who kind of come out against that is one, you know, they, I don't mind this. I think anytime anyone conflates eventing with event sourcing, it's an opportunity to engage and talk to that person, not an opportunity to make them look dumb. Cause come on now, like, Nobody knows everything. Get over yourself. Right. Um, and then the second thing I think their point is, and just because someone perhaps is engaging in a non what I would call constructive fashion doesn't mean they don't have a point. They might have a point. And their point is, I think, in the Kafka ecosystem. Right. It's not an out of the box events. There's no arbitrator. Right. In in vanilla basic Kafka. So if you're going to do event sourcing, you have to build the arbitrator. Now, that might be a Kafka Streams application, right, that's going to sit there and make sure that anything, you know, that those the, that opportunistic commit is happening, right, properly. It's the one that's going to reorder, right? It's the one that's going to use epochs. It's the one that's going to know. But you have to build that, right? And I think that's kind of where that comes in in Kafka when we talk about event sourcing. So let me make sure I'm clear on this. Eventing is how you capture all the information, yeah, I would say. Whereas event sourcing is how I'm pulling the information. It's out how you're of storing this. it, right? It's so if I have a wait, wait. Yeah. Event sourcing is how you're storing yes, it. To me, absolutely. Even though it's oh. sourcing, doesn't it? Doesn't sound like it, but it is, right? Yeah. It's a bad terminology. It is. Then. It is, and that's why I don't get mad when people confuse it either, because it's not like it. You know, yeah. we could have had a better name for it, because basically what it is is my entire picture of a customer. It's stored as the events of that entire customer's life cycle. Like I could back from day one. That's how I how it's stored. The my buildup of the aggregate is based on events. It's the same idea with your bank. That's a the classic example is your bank account, right? Your bank account balance is stored as a series of credits and debits, right? Or yeah, right. I mean, that's all it is is a running series of that. That that that's then you know map reduced down to whatever your you know current bank balance is. Balances, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So. So so is is that example event sourcing then? Yeah. Bank balances. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um. So I'm still not clear. Eventing is the general idea of 
looking at a system in terms of the events that happen and event sourcing is how you store those events in your system. So here's how I like to describe it, right? Well, let's look at the, and I always use customers because they're an easy example, right? So I have a domain, that domain is customer, right? There's there's a command-based, which would be update this customer. That's like a command-based, I go update it. If you're doing eventing, then eventing is this customer was updated. I'm going to, anything that happens, and it always should be past tense, right? So I'm going to tell you about what happened, right, as a stream of events to describe, you know, and anyone who's interested in the life cycle of this customer, I'm going to tell you about it in a stream of events, right? That's kind of the, and that's how you're going to get information about this aggregate. It's a, it's a kind of a descriptor. Um, how I store that customer? Who cares? right? That's separate from me being able to describe what happens to that aggregate it, with events. Hmm. So. The one thing that comes up there is how do you decide what a, a, a total event is? Yeah. I mean, if you're saying, oh, this thing happened. Mm-hmm. Yes. What, how do you? Well, I have a great yeah. plan for this, right? Okay. So, so that comes into event storming, right? And event storming, if you guys heard it, maybe for anyone listening to this who hasn't, event storming is a process where you sit down with, you know, LOBs, with businesses. It's very, you know, like very homey to the DDD, you know, uh, people. And you describe, you kind of build these aggregates, right? What do we care about, right? We care about, you know, customers. Okay, well, what do we care about? Who cares about this? And this is my thing, Right. In order, and because I'm wondering if what you're going to is, is a problem I see frequently, which is bloated aggregates, bloated events, where people shove everything possible, right, into events. And my rule of thumb for this is you need to go look at the value, including that information provides. So let's talk about a use case where I'm on a mobile phone and I'm waiting for an update right for my flight or something. The human attention span, mine is much less. I don't know what the average is, but mine's even less, right? I'm going to get mad if I have to wait. If there's a piece of information I can include in the actual, quote, you know, raw event, the main event that lets me make that do that faster, that's worth it. Now, if I got somebody else who runs reports, let's say every six hours and they need to go look up a piece of information, they can go look it up themselves, right? That consumer can consume an event and go, oh, this happened. I need to go get more information so I can do my job. That's not something to me that would need to be included in an event aggregate, right? So that's how I break it down for people when we talk about building, you know, what does that total event look like? It's about finding out what people care about, what information they need to act, and then weighing the value of adding that in. Right. It seems like because you have to decide, okay, are we going to look at this in terms of, okay, the sun rose and the sunset. So an event is a day long versus... Um, you know, something is happening now and we got a whole stream of events, the, you know, the, ah. the, the, the ball is falling. And so we have, you know, an event every You just teed me second. up into Kafka streams. That was beautifully done okay. because there are many okay. cases where what I care about is a window or a slice of time over a whole day. And I want to know, I want an event based off that, like customer interaction on a website, right? I want to, I don't want to know every single time they click a button. I want to have a view of their session and have an event of a, you know, the event is, you know, customer session ended or customer, right? And then I want to know all about that. So what you would do is you would have a raw topic that had every single customer interaction every time they did anything, right? 
spin up Kafka streams. We have built in, you know, tumbling, sliding, uh, hopping windows, right? In just those events. And then you can build that specific, uh, you can build events off of those events, right? That tell you exactly what you need to know. Okay. But how, so, but I mean, are you still capturing like the but the customer pushed this button? Um, I mean, all of those things. That would are, be like the raw event, <laughs> but then you want the to, yeah. Okay. So you take, you, you, you still keep track of all that stuff, but then stream says, well, what granularity would you like these things in? That's and, right. Yeah. The you... time-based stream transform. And mm-hmm. that's what windowing is all about is giving okay. you the, those ability to apply time to a stream. And then your output of that is a new stream Mm-hmm. That just has been transformed with the windowing uh, process. Okay. Okay. So you just so you keep all your raw information and then you turn it into the events that you're interested. Absolutely. In. But you could also turn it into other events. Absolutely. Right. Like let's say okay. yeah. Let's okay. say that anytime. Let's say that you have and regulatory uses for this. Like and also sim like is a great use case for this too. So we have a lot of people who do fraud detection and also you know track devices and they want to alert when something bad happens. So they ingest a raw stream of events and then they basically spawn off alerts when that criteria is met. Right. So those would be a new alert event. Right. So you can you can kind of read these raw ingests of data. And then do what you need to do to spawn out new events. Mm-hmm. Again, this is sounding like very much like functional programming, isn't it? Though to me, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. yep. Function the functional world and, that we are and moving it's towards. Easier to think about, I think, this way. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it is a mind shift, but. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that it's interesting the parallels here too with. A lot of times the argument against functional programming is like, oh, it's too slow or uses too much memory or too much pressure on the GC or whatever. Kind of similar to the arguments against like durable streams like Kafka is like, oh, that uses too much too much disk or whatever. And at this point, for both of those, we can respond generally and say like, the resources we have are for yeah. sufficient for your use case in mm-hmm. 98% of the use cases. And again, cases. right, if you don't, mm-hmm. don't want to do that, just run in our cloud. Then you don't have to worry about it. Mm-hmm. There you go. Right. You can throw, if, if it's a real problem, you can throw hardware and other resources at the problem Absolutely. to fix it. And, the, and if it's only the 2%, then presumably they have the... If it's important to them, they have the money to. Abs- to absolutely. Spend on. And that's the thing about, you know, you look at like the, the, you know, the use cases that we work with and those are core critical money costing use cases. And, you know, mm-hmm. that, you know, and the return on investment is huge, right? For what you're getting mm-hmm. versus waiting 24 hours, like that customer interaction, especially nowadays, like people don't like to wait. They feel they shouldn't have to. I remember when I first could order pizza online and I didn't have to talk to a human and I was the happiest person alive. I was like, this is a whole new world, right? And now it is a world. And anytime you have to pick up the phone, people are like, oh, why do I have to call somebody, right? Well, something's got to drive all of that real-time interaction. Um, you know, and Kafka, it, it, the whole Kafka ecosystem is just, it's just a natural, to me, elegant fit for it. So does it come in a way that... I don't have to know a lot in order to install it. I mean, is there a... You don't have to know anything to use our cloud, which is why, right? <laughs> there you go. Yeah. 
They also, one of the things I love about Kafka is they also have test containers for it. So actually, Bruce, in our book uh, repo that we're working on, we actually use the Kafka test container to spin up Kafka. So you, when you run SBT test, you don't even actually have to care where the Kafka comes from because the test container spins it up for you. And, and something and like Kafka Streams you can do, and this is one of the things that I love. So there's a company called, I don't know if you're familiar with Backdata, um, but they are fantastic. They're some of my favorite people in the world. They are incredibly elegant and they write these you know, beautiful utility, just utility things you know you want to do in an elegant fashion. One of them is they have a fluent Kafka Streams test library. Um, and so I always introduce people to that. And that way you don't even have to, you don't have to have a Kafka broker. You don't have to have any of that stuff in order to just play around with Kafka streams, but literally running Kafka, you download a tar and you just go boop. If you want to run it locally, it was never that hard, even, you know, without test containers or anything. It was, you know, so, so is it hard to get started? No. Is it hard to run it in production successfully? Yes. It's a distributed system, right? I mean, you're getting in, you're getting in. Yeah. Yeah. It's not your lamp stack. It's no. uh, there's more more to it. <laughs> um, yeah, the client end is very easy. I mean, you know, and, and we the, the you know the clients are whatever language you're comfortable with, right? There's a client for it, so it's your home. Um, but but the actual Kafka broker overhead and managing those, especially large Kafka distributions, when you've got like money on the line, um, you're going to need to either you know pay for that expertise in house um, or use a fully managed service like Confluent Cloud. So one of the things I. My college roommate's son is graduating with a PhD from MIT, and he reached out and he joined the uh, Winter Tech Forum group. And um, one of the things he's working, well, the thing he and his compatriots are working on is uh, reproducible uh, scientific data. I mean, you know, capturing data and so that other people can use the data to reproduce results and check test results and you know this is so once that got stuck in the back of my head i've been just kind of noticing things and this sure sounds like a good i mean absolutely like try doing this without a durable log try doing that without a durable log no mm-hmm. way and that's what i say about kafka mm-hmm. streams too is that with kafka streams we use stream time you know just like you know flink has watermarks and they have their own thing too but the deterministic processing of records for something like what you're talking about is paramount and so well, one of yeah. the issues that they have though is vast amounts of data i mean like and you're you're smiling so uh i'm guessing you're going no problem right. we're good for the, we're good okay so all right it, there one caveat to that may be that to deal with vast amounts of data in Kafka, you probably are going to have to partition it. Yeah, so you have to have something to partition on. And if I don't know if there's a use case where you wouldn't have something to partition on, but there's it, lots of them where you don't, but they don't partition. care about order, right? So, so yeah. oh, universal so, yeah, order. They, yeah, they yeah. don't care about universal order, right? But in Kafka, like you take something like Kafka Streams, right? Kafka Streams naturally inherently builds in order. So what it'll do is when it pulls from a, a group of partitions, it'll go and it'll pull from the oldest one first. You know, whatever record was produced before, it'll pull from that and naturally try and reorder things correctly, right? And the way that Kafka Streams works- It makes an attempt yeah, at reordering yeah, universally. absolutely. And the only thing that can, and, and the nice thing about that is the only, the only thing that can increase time in Kafka Streams is a record. So it's all run on stream time. So what that means is because everything in time is driven by record order and because Kafka is a durable log, right? 
Um, your record order is the same every time. Yay. And so that's yeah. how that deterministic processing works, um, which can be incredibly valuable. Huh. Nice. Hmm. Whoa. Well, that was fun. Yeah. <laughs> Very mentally stimulating. Yeah. I, I am so convinced on this new stream oriented world and, um, mm-hmm. Thank you for walking us through it, Anna. It's uh, really fun to have you on and chat with you and definitely look forward to having Sherry with you in person. Absolutely. Someday. <laughs> but um, yeah, anything else before we wrap up? What's your uh, Twitter? Oh, it's your... it's JB Fletch underscore. I am committed to the J- underscore. Mine starts with an underscore. Yeah. I should have done. What, what's the reason for the underscore at the end? Because there was already a JB Fletch. Yeah. I, so in ActionScript, back when I like got into Twitter, I was doing ActionScript. And there was a coding convention where um, like class private yeah. uh, variables, you prefix an underscore. And it was purely just Python. a convention. Yeah. Oh, really? Oh, I didn't know that. Does Python still, do people in Python mm-hmm. still use yeah. that convention? Mm-hmm. Huh. Yep. So when people see my Twitter handle, they think I'm a Python person. Huh. Not necessarily. This. I'm going to move my underscore to the end, like like Anna has. Yeah. Then, then no, I won't I, be confused. I don't think it necessarily a... means that. I think it's just. <laughs> and of course, not all languages would support leading underscores for identifiers. True. So. True. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much, Anna. That was super fun. <laughs> All right. And thank you guys for having me. Sure.